Thank you, our Father, for this word. Thank you for the hopefulness of this word. Thank you for the Christ-centeredness of this word. How it points us to the only answer for all that ails us. It points us to the only answer for all that the world supposes to offer in replacement of Him. It gives us life. It gives us confidence. It gives us delight. Not only, Father, for the eternal future, but it gives us confidence and hope and life and joy today. And might we find that to be true? And would you transform us by this word? Make you, would you make us bold with this word? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All Steve wanted to do was clean his fish tank. He had no idea of the problems that lay ahead as he wanted to clean his fish tank. Here's a report from one journal about his accident. He was trying to get rid of a colony of zoanthids. Uh, they're, they're a relative of corals and sea anemones, and it was infesting his aquarium rocks. He had heard that boiling water would do the trick. And when he tried it, he accidentally inhaled some of the steam that arose from his tank. Twenty minutes later, his nose was running and he had a cough. Four hours later, his breathing was labored and he was headed to the emergency room. By the time he arrived, he was suffering from severe coughing fits and chest pains. He was stabilized, but he developed asthma and a persistent cough and had to use steroids and inhaler for over two months. The reason for his sudden illness was palytoxin, a speciality associated with zoanthids and the second deadliest poison in the natural world. One gram of palytoxin will kill more than a 100 million mice or about 25,000 people. This poison, liberated by the boiling water, had risen into Steve's airways in a cloud of steam. What's unclear is how the palytoxin uh, infiltrated the zoanthids in his tank. It is possible that it happened through the association of other corals and other rock fragments. Contaminated and uncontaminated rocks are very hard to tell apart and can only be done with certainty by genetic testing. Steve didn't do genetic testing before he poured the boiling water on his rocks. And so when aquarium owners innocently trade zoanthids for their aquariums, sometimes they're passing on to one another the second deadliest poison in the natural world. An innocent hobby turned deadly by some innocent-looking corals. Keith, I thought about you and your tank all week when I was reading that story. Be careful, brother. What's the antidote for such toxins? How do you clean a toxic environment? How do you sanctify 
a spiritually toxic environment. The question for us in the church is, what are the toxins that are infiltrating the church? What are the toxins spiritually that are attempting to lead us away from Jesus Christ? And what are the antidotes to such spiritual toxins? How should we address the false and heretical teachings of the world that might lead us astray? This morning, I want to think with you one more message about the new year. Every year at the beginning of the year, I have one message on Scripture, one on prayer, and one on evangelism, and recently have been adding one on our theme for the year as well. This morning, I want to think with you about the importance of evangelism. Why evangelism? Why Why are we so adhered to the gospel? What's the significance of the gospel? Why do we persist with the gospel? Why do we exhort evangelism? Why do we preach evangelistically even? And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul answers those questions for us. Hear his, his theme in a simple sentence. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's answer for all the wayward philosophies of the world. Anything that is arisen, that has arisen in the world as something to pull us away from Jesus Christ and pull us away from God and pull us away from worship is answered with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to think with you this morning about some of the many attempts of the world to supplant God and then the one common answer from God against the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's answer for all the wayward philosophies of the world. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of historical and theological context to what's going on in Colossians 2. The problem in Colossae was very similar to the problem that the Ephesian church faced. That is, it was situated on a major highway. And because many Uh, foreigners passed through the city and influenced it with a variety of intellectual and theological and philosophical ideas. The, The church was particularly inundated with all these false ideas that were bombarding it from the world. There was a a plethora of false ideas that were attempting to infiltrate the Ephesian church, Ephesian and here the Colossian church. And it, it should be no surprise to us that these kinds of attacks are coming because this is Satan's common device to, to lead us astray by ideas that sound good but are of no value. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 11, such men, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So in other words, there are people who have come and infiltrated the church. They are false teachers. And then he says, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 11, It is no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. In other words, Satan disguises himself, says that he is the way to the light and the truth, and those who follow after him will do likewise, and they will attempt to infiltrate the church and take over the church. And in this chapter, the apostle is addressing a number of philosophies that were bombarding the Colossian church And he keeps pointing back to the one singular answer that is given to those false teachings. 
Let me identify a few of those for you. The many attempts of the world to supplant God. This is not all of the attempts, but these are five attempts that Paul identifies in Colossians 2. Let me just kind of overview the chapter for you very quickly. The first one we find in verse 4, and it is this idea, man is supreme. And so Paul says, speaking about Christ, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this to you, I remind you of the priority of Christ and the treasures that are found in him so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. That little phrase, no no one, is going to identify for us a number of the false teachings. He uses that phrase four times in this chapter. He uses it in verse 4, verse 8, verse 16, verse 18. And it is this idea that there are people who are espousing these very things, attempting to delude and lead away people from the truth. Here he is speaking in verse 4 about persuasive arguments. The kind of speaking that Paul is talking about is a kind of a cheating, if you will, with words, a deception that is done by false reasoning. It's persuasive speech. It's, it's the kind of speech that is attempting to manipulate people and talk people into something that they might not originally hold to be true. Those who come with these kinds of speeches appear winsome. They appear rational, logical, but they are deceivers. There's a variety of New Testament examples of this. We see it in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, Paul writes, that church. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? So people have come in. And they have, as it were, cast a spell over the Galatian church, deluding them and leading them away from the truth. Philippians chapter 3, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there are some who are creeping in. They sound rational. They sound logical. They sound right. They are persuasive. And they are attempting to put you back into bondage, into legalism. Second Corinthians chapter 2, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. They are so persuasive, they've already persuaded some that the resurrection has already taken place. There's not another resurrection coming And the faith of some is disturbed. They've led astray. These are persuasive arguments. We find similar kinds of things in our world today. Counselors who give fleeting lip service to the authority of Scripture, but in reality are more interested in the latest theories of secular research and how they might assist people without the Bible and by human reason. They're scientists and archaeologists who trust their findings more than the authority of Scripture. In their minds, science always trumps Scripture, and those who believe in God are mere relics. These theorists exalt the philosophy and thinking of man as ultimate. Man's ideas are supreme. 
They're spiritual descendants of the first Babylonians. You, you know those guys? Genesis chapter 11. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower, whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's all about making a name for ourselves and propagating our theories and our ideas. And today, one of those expressions is a radical individualism where an individual man's truth triumphs over all other, all other revel, revealed truth. To deny self and to deny one's own truth is the greatest denial of so-called truth. And so one writer says of this philosophy, authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths becomes the norm. My truth trumps all other truth. And we are seeing the rejection of revealed truth played out in bold relief in our culture. And when that happens, abortion and homosexual marriage and gender confusion flourish. And if you dare to attempt to speak God's truth, revealed truth in that kind of context, context, you're not only looked at askew, what's wrong with you, but you're minimalized, degraded, mocked, scorned. Man is supreme. Man's ideas, man's philosophy. There's another philosophy that attempts to supplant God. It's found in verse eight, worldly indulgence. Worldly indulgence is supreme. See to it. That no one, again, there are those who are out there who are propagating this idea. And the apostle says, see to it that none of those, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Where does that come from? It comes from the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Notice in verse 4, he says, man can be deluded by these false philosophies here, he takes it up a notch and he says, you're not only deluded, the potential is not only that you be confused, but he says you also could be taken captive, kidnapped, enslaved by worldly philosophy. Philosophy sounds helpful, sounds profound, deep, sounds wise. And it is enslaving. It is a deceitfulness that is empty and void of the truth. It cannot, it cannot liberate anyone and it will only keep them in bondage. Listen, philosophy enslaves because it is based on reason. It seems reasonable. Whereas truth is based on revealed doctrine from God. That's the difference. God's told us, as opposed to us trying to sort out, well, what seems reasonable? And the philosophies of the world are all founded on things that can be, quote unquote, reasoned out by men. Where do these philosophies come from? Notice what Paul says. They are according to the tradition 
of men. They believe something because we've always believed it to be so. This is, this is the way it has always been. All wise men everywhere have always believed these kinds of things. And that kind of, that kind of thinking about tradition will only lead to enslavement. Just ask the Jews if they were liberated from the philosophy of the Pharisees or if they were enslaved by the philosophies of the Pharisees. It was enslavement. It wasn't liberty. These philosophies, Paul also says, include the elementary principles of the world. This is the heart of captivating delusion. Now, notice Paul is not specific about what he's talking about. He just says it's the elementary basic principles of the world. And as a vagueness implies that all the philosophies of the world are dangerous. Any philosophy that comes out from the world is dangerous. But the word elementary supposes that these things are fundamental to the world system. These are these are the world's most basic kinds of philosophies. And so we know, though Paul doesn't identify them explicitly, we know they include things like pragmatism and indulging the flesh and living for self and not living for others. We know those things are included in that list in part because we know from other scriptures that these are the very kinds of things that enslave people. They don't liberate They enslave and they keep in bondage. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? If you... If you put yourself under that worldly philosophy, it will enslave you and it will produce what that enslavement only can produce, and that is death. Whereas, if you're enslaved to Christ, you get life. Now, he says in verse 22 of Romans 6, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome Eternal life. Freedom to sin. To the elementary things of this world is only bondage, only enslavement, and it will only kill. There's no there's no hope there. The base conviction of the world is to indulge the flesh at all costs. Self-indulgence always says, you're going to be free, even while it holds the chains of bondage behind its back. There's no freedom here in worldly indulgence. There's another supposition, another attempt to supplant God. We find it in verses 16 and 17, and it's the idea that legalism is supreme. In verse 16, the apostle is talking about a group of people that came into the Colossian church. Perhaps 
They were trying to serve as an antidote to those who they saw in verses 8 and 9 who were attempting to lead the church astray into licentiousness. And these are the counteraction to the licentious people and they're attempting to put people back into bondage under legalism. So they're keeping the laws about diet and the festivals and the sacrifices. So that's why Paul says in verse 16, don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Don't attempt, don't let anyone put you back under the bondage of the law when Christ has fulfilled the law and freed you from the power of the law. All these folks were coming into the church attempting to subvert the work of Christ that fulfilled the law. And the problem with legalism is that it it attempts to make that which is internal, external. And my problem isn't what's inside of me. My problem is what's outside of me. And if I can control what's outside of me, then I will be good inside. And Paul says it's not about keeping the law. You can't. It's about trusting the one who has kept the law for you. So legalism is no answer, though it is purported to be an answer. There's a fourth movement from the world to attempt to supplant God, and that's mysticism. Mysticism is supreme. Notice verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, the prize of Christ, by delighting in self-abasement, by delighting in the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. All these activities in verse 18 refer to the attempt to attain righteousness by self. There is within a man is the supposition a secret wisdom and a secret ability that will elevate him above his problems. Self-abasement sounds like some kind of form of nobility and some form of humility. Oh, um, I'm just going to put myself down and I will serve and I will I will submit myself and subject myself. And it sounds like this great humility. Yet. Notice what Paul says. They're self-abased, yet at the end, notice he says, they are inflated with, without cause by his fleshly mind. So they are asserting, oh, my lowliness and my humility. Look at me and my humility, right? It's a, it's a prideful looking at their humility. Their, their, their very actions deny what they're attempting to do. And those who are self-abased delight in it. They're proud of their humility. They find their value. They find their confidence in their own attainments. But notice not only that, but they have, verse 18 tells us, something of a, a secret and mystical knowledge. They, they worship angels. And they have visions that others cannot see. And these visions, these angel-worshipping episodes, suggest a secret kind of knowledge that they have. They have the decoder ring, as it were. You're going to make them right before God. Notice it says he's taking his stand on visions that he has seen. He has a secret knowledge. I've seen it. 
I've seen this vision. God spoke to me in a dream. God revealed this thing to me. I have something that you do not have. His personal experience becomes more authoritative than the revealed truth of, truth of God. And he becomes the judge of all things. This mystic that has this inner knowledge and inner wisdom supposedly uses words like he is beyond and above. He has understood the deep and immeasurable. He's comprehended the incomprehensible. He has gone to the inner and the inmost. He has experience and devotion. They revere the inner life and repudiate the mind. They're connected to the Gnostics who believe they have some secret knowledge of God. Listen carefully. They may not reject Christ, but they think of Jesus as an example to follow and reject Jesus as a redeemer to save. I don't need a redeemer because I have this inner knowledge of my own. So man is supreme. Worldly indulgence is supreme. Legalism is supreme. Mysticism is supreme. Asceticism is supreme. Verses 20 to 23. Some advocate a spiritual life through giving up God-given gifts, which led to things like monasticism and extreme fasting. And Paul says to those things, verse 21, these things are called, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't do anything related to the things that might indulge the flesh or, or meet general basic important needs. If I can just, if I can just withhold, if I can, if I can just refrain, if I can, if I can starve myself, then God will be pleased. They're, they're founded on what some have called the simplistic ABCs of the world. And it seems, it seems to help for a time. If I don't indulge the flesh, if I go on a, an Amazon fasting spree, it helps my bank account for a time. But it is inadequate to stave off sin. Says one writer, there's only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us. And that is the power of the indwelling Christ. So Paul says of these things, they are of no lasting value. They don't hold up. They don't endure. They won't help. Fleshly rules cannot secure spirits, cannot solve spiritual problems. Spiritual maturity is not the result of what we give up for God. Spiritual life and maturity is the result of what Christ gave up for us, his position in heaven and what he did, did for us on the cross and what he does for us in us. So that's Paul's list of attacks against Christ and God. They're relentless. They're repeated. They were true in Paul's day, and we see glimmers of all of those things in our day as well. What, what's God's response? What will God say is the antidote and the cleansing agent for these spiritual toxins? Where is the hope? And there is one central hope. The one answer from God against the world. Now, maybe you had this happen in your home as you were late raising children like Regine and I did in our home. We would ask 
our children questions. And it got to be something of a game. In fact, it still pops up even with our late 20s, early 30-year-olds. Even to this day, I'll ask a question and the kids will look at me. One in particular kind of get a smirk on her face and say, well, that's easy, Dad. Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. To which I said, no, Jesus isn't the answer to everything. You are the answer to the person who needs to clean your room. (laughs) Not Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. But when we're talking about spiritual problems, and when we're talking about spiritual needs, it is true that Jesus is the answer to everything. Paul is making clear in verses 9 and 10 particularly that the world is attacking with all of its variant philosophies against Christ. Notice verse 8. They are pursuing these philosophies and empty deceptions into the verse rather than Christ. They will pursue anything except Jesus. All deviant philosophies are the world's long war against God. They're all rooted in the same thing. Just don't make me deal with God. Give me anything except God. I will take anything rather than Him. So what follows is your equipping the saints moment. If we're going to live in this world that Paul described, we need an answer. And what's the answer? What is the answer for ourselves so that we're not led astray? And what is the answer for the world to those who are blinded? How can we help them who have been deluded and deceived and held in bondage? What's the answer? And the answer, Paul says, is Jesus Christ. This is what we need to know. This is what we need to be equipped with. This is what we need to use. Jesus Christ. What is so special about Jesus Christ? Notice verses 9 and 10. It answers the question, what is special about the person of Jesus Christ? These verses identify who he was and is. Notice what he says, verse 9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, in Christ, there are Two present, ongoing, perpetual realities. One, all the fullness of deity dwells in Him. Christ bore the full reality of what it means to be God. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ was undiminished deity. He was not like God. He was not characteristic of God. He was not part of God. Even in the incarnation, to look at Christ is to look at the fullness of deity, undiminished deity. He was not part of God. He was God. And yet, notice also this, in Him, the fullness of The magnitude, the infiniteness, the majesty of deity dwells in bodily form. That is, he contains everything that it means to be God. 
He is fully God in every way. And it's contained in a real life flesh and blood body. He's genuine man. He ate. He slept. He grew physically. He grew physically weary. He had a touchable human body. And to look at that touchable human body is to look at true man and at the same time, true God. The body of Jesus Christ was completely and all God. And the significance of that is given to us in verse 10. That is who he was and is. And connecting that reality in verse 9 to something else in him. So in him is full God and full deity. And in him, when we are in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. When you are identified with him, you have the fullness of all that he grants to you of being in him. Listen, if the, if the fullness of deity is not in him, then whatever we have when we are in him is less than we need. And we are damned and hopeless. But because he is deity and because we as believers are in him, then note verse 10, he is the head. He is the Lord. He is the master. We follow him because he's everything. What is so special about Jesus Christ is that he is a man. But he is like no other man this world has ever seen. He is fully and truly the eternal God-man. And that leads to what is next important about him. And that is what he has done. What has Christ done? We see this in verses 11 to 15. And these verses emphasize his work. Notice verses 11 and 12. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That, that is, there was nobody that took a knife and circumcised you physically. You have a spiritual circumcision that has cut your heart and identified your heart to him. You've been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. How did that happen? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit into your identity with Christ, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's cut you internally and given you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. He's given you the ability to obey him and follow him. Notice what else he's done. He's changed your heart. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 13. He has made us alive. You were dead in your transgressions. And you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And he made you alive. Together with him. Having forgiven all of our sins. Our sin left us dead. And under the condemnation of death. And his death on the cross in our place, satisfied God so that God can remove the penalty of sin and grant to us life. You were dead, now you're alive. 
He has not only made us alive, He has also, verse 13 and 14, forgiven all of our transgressions. How did He do that? Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. So there's, there's a document that has all of my sins listed on it. And it was not my friend. It was hostile against me. It accused me rightly. It condemned me. And he has taken that document, verse 14, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's been atoned for, forgiven, redeemed when he died on the cross. We might say it this way. All those decrees against me died when he died. And we've been given life. Sin is forgiven. And then also notice verse 15. He's changed our hearts. He's made us alive. He's forgiven our sins. Verse 15. He has dethroned our great enemy on the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Here we have the power of sin being removed. We're no longer enslaved and in bondage. We're freed to obey him. We're liberated to obey God. This is, this is Christ's work And Paul is answering every objection, every emphasis of the world to say that will get you only to death. Only Christ is the answer. What I want you to notice in this passage as well is it's not just the heart of the chapter, verses 9 to 15, in which Paul lays out the gospel. But every time he identifies something that will lead someone away from Christ, he reminds them of the importance of Christ. So notice verse 4. Man is supreme. Oh no, Paul says. Verse 3. In Christ are found the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And verse 5. I rejoice to see your good discipline and your stability of your faith in Christ. It's about Christ. It's not about the the delusions that come from persuasive argument. It's not rationalism. It's not the superiority of manhood. It is the superiority of the man, Christ Jesus. What about the answer about, or what about the the objection? Worldly indulgence is supreme. That's verse 8. Verse 9, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He answers worldly philosophy, worldly indulgence with the person of Christ. What about the uh, what, what about the objection? Well, legalism is supreme. Verses 16 and 17. Notice the end of verse 17. But the substance of the things to which legalism is pointing is found in Christ. All those things that you're wanting to get back to, they're the shadow. The reality is Christ. Legalism doesn't save you. But the one to whom the legalistic practices point, Jesus Christ, he will save. What about the objection? Mysticism is supreme. Verses 18 and 19. Then notice verse 19, the end. Being held, excuse me, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body grows with a growth which is from God. The growth comes from God. Christ. Mysticism isn't the answer. Christ is the answer. 
Or what about asceticism? Asceticism is supreme. Verses 20 to 23. Oh, no, Paul says, if you've died with Christ. Christ is the answer. Why would you go back to anything but him? Oh, brothers and sisters, Christ is the answer. Some of you are going to pull up your phone sometime this week and you're going to see a news flash, probably this afternoon. And behind that news flash is going to be some kind of worldly philosophy that's designed to pull you away from Christ. It's going to be a philosophy that says Christ isn't the answer. Here's another answer for you. Here's another way, a better way. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the answer to all that ails us spiritually. And Jesus is the answer that we're going to take to the world. What, what else do we have? We have nothing else to take. We have nothing else that's going to liberate. Now, we, 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 have, we have fine music on Sunday mornings. And we have great teaching. And we have compassionate fellowship. And we have wise counselors. But all of those things are nothing without Christ. And if we're going to help this world, a world that is desperately in need, what the world needs from us is the unmitigated gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel? Well, ask Ruth. She can tell you in two minutes. What's the gospel? The gospel is I'm a sinner that deserves the wrath of God. I'm a sinner that is utterly incapable of pleasing God. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and died on the cross and absorbed God's wrath against my sin for me so that I would not have to die. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died so that he might grant life to all who believe in him. Jesus Christ The gospel is that Jesus Christ not only died for the penalty of our sin, he died for the power of sin against us. And this good news is not granted to everyone, though. It's only granted to those who have faith to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that that we are not people who can save ourselves, to believe that we are sinners worthy of God's wrath, to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, to believe that Jesus Christ is worth following no matter what the cost. Oh, brother and sister, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that's what you need to carry into this world. That's the only thing that's going to help. And oh, friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, You may be close to Jesus Christ. You may be even convinced that it's true. But you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Then brother or friend, you are not a believer. And that means you are an almost Christian. But to be an almost Christian is to be wholly dead. It does no good to come close to Christ without coming into Christ in faith. So you must believe. You must believe that you are incapable. You must believe that you are unworthy. You must believe that he did everything that you could not do and that he grants to you life in eternity and life now. Oh, friend, would you believe? Do not go into hell as an almost Christian. Go into heaven as a full follower of Jesus Christ. That's all we've got. The world has all kinds of things bombarding against us. It is said 
that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? That may be true in some settings, but God's imitations, imitations of God are always deadly. Oh, brother, sister in Christ, take this gospel to the world. It's the only help. Oh, friend, if you are not in Christ, if you have not believed, believe today. It's your only hope. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, for the hope of Jesus Christ, for the power of Christ to address, to fix all all of our ills, all that ails us, and to address all that the world would attempt to supplant Christ with. And Father, might we find confidence and hope in Him. Might we find such confidence in Him that we delight in and are secure in the salvation in which He saved us. And might we find such confidence in Him that we would dare not give anything to the world but this truth of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascended, seated at your throne, and coming again to fully redeem His people. We pray in His name for His honor and glory. Amen.